Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, November 26, 2017, on the basis of Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Imagine that you were being charged with a very serious crime, a crime that carried with it the sentence of life in prison without any possibility of parole. A crime that you absolutely did not commit, but for whatever reason were being charged with anyways. Would you trust our American justice system to find you not guilty? Would you feel comfortable placing your life in our court system's hands? It's the Sixth Amendment to our nation's constitution that guarantees those charged with crimes a swift and public trial before a jury of one's peers. And it is that right that is both the beauty of our court system and also its inherent difficulty. See, history has shown that it isn't always so easy to ensure that a jury is impartial, that they are unaffected by prejudice or public pressure. History has also shown that even when a jury is impartial, it's not as if getting placed on a jury suddenly gives those men and women superpowers. They're still working with limited information. They're still trying to decipher between fact and fiction. And so sometimes juries just get it wrong. Sometimes guilty people are convicted. I'm sorry, guilty people are acquitted and innocent people are convicted. All of which is probably reason why each one of us, given the choice, would prefer to avoid that situation altogether. As much as we would love to trust our court system to the fullest, each one of us would prefer not to have our lives depend on it. To avoid being charged, standing trial, facing judgment, each one of us would prefer to avoid it completely. And if that's the case, then the reality with which we are confronted and the word of God that's in front of us today probably is a bit unsettling. See, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about how the Christian life is lived in this space in between, how there is this gap, this disconnect between appearance and reality, how it is not always easy to tell the difference, to see the difference between someone who is a child of God and who is not. In fact, sometimes trying to draw a line between those two groups of people would be downright impossible. And yet in these verses today, Jesus assures us that that very thing is going to happen on a day coming very soon. All mankind will stand trial, all mankind will be judged, and all mankind will be sentenced. And I'm guessing that each and every one of us would sort of prefer to avoid that if we could. And yet here's what makes all the difference. As we're going to see in these verses, the one before whom we stand trial, the one before whom we are judged, is not a jury of 12 of our peers. Rather, it is none other than Jesus. God has appointed Jesus sort of as a one-man supreme court. And in his hands the eternity of all mankind rests. In these verses, Jesus tells us 
exactly how he's going to carry out that judgment. And so as we look at these verses today, we are going to see not only that we can completely trust God's system of justice, but we can actually look forward to the day of our judgment because when that day comes, we can be absolutely certain that Judge Jesus is going to get it right. Here's the basic scenario as Jesus describes it in these verses. When Jesus returns, all mankind is going to be gathered before him. He is going to separate people into two groups, sort of the way a shepherd might separate his flock into sheep and goats. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. Jesus tells us that those on the right are going to be declared innocent and they will spend their eternity in heaven. Jesus tells us that those on his left are going to be declared guilty, and they will spend their eternity in hell. Now, I'm guessing that to anyone who is even remotely familiar with the Christian faith, none of that really comes as much of a surprise. What is surprising is the basis Jesus gives for his judgment, the reason he gives for the decision he arrives at. Why are those on Jesus' right going to be declared not guilty? Why are they going to enjoy an eternity in heaven? Jesus says this, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Why are those on Jesus' right declared not guilty? Because they did all of these things. Why are those on Jesus' left declared guilty? Apparently, because they didn't. In other words, it appears as though Judge Jesus is saying that our good works, or lack thereof, are the basis on which our eternity will be decided. And not only is that a surprising thought to anyone who is remotely familiar with the Christian faith, but it is a troubling thought to those who hold to the Christian faith. So what exactly is going on here? We need to pay careful attention not only to what Jesus says, but also to the response Jesus' words produce in these two different groups. When Jesus praises those on his right, notice how they are shocked. Who, me? When? When did I do those things? What are you talking about, Jesus? Apparently, those on Jesus' right were paying no attention to the things that they were doing. They weren't keeping track of them. They weren't keeping score. They weren't sitting there making tally marks every time they did something good. They certainly weren't trusting in those things for their eternity. In contrast, when Jesus criticizes those on his left, they too are shocked. Who, me? When? What? What are you talking about, Jesus? Apparently, those people were paying attention to the good things that they, do, they were doing. They were trusting in those things for their eternal life, and they simply assumed that they were doing a good enough job. One of the things that makes it really easy for a judge or a jury to arrive at a correct verdict is when the defendant comes forward with a confession. And that's exactly what happens in these verses. That's the first way we see Judge Jesus get it right. He produces a confession. The response of each group indicates what is truly in their hearts. Jesus makes it crystal clear 
the difference between those on his right and those on his left, between righteous and unrighteous, between heaven and hell. One group is paying no attention to their good works. The other is meticulously measuring them. One is shocked by praise. The other is shocked by criticism. One is not in any way depending on themselves. The other one is. Jesus gets it right, first of all, because he produces this confession. He reveals what is truly in each group's heart. That helps clarify the basis on which, Jesus, on which Jesus will judge all mankind. It also helps explain the specific things that Jesus mentions. Take a look at that list again. Jesus mentions very specific good deeds. He says that those on his right helped those who needed food, those who needed drink, those who needed clothes. He says that those on his right cared for the outcasts and the outsiders, strangers, the ill, the imprisoned. Jesus could have mentioned all kinds of good deeds, but he mentions those ones in particular. By the same token, I'm sure those on Jesus' left were, were doing all kinds of at least outwardly good things in their life, and yet Jesus mentions these specific things which evidently they were not doing. So why? Well, Jesus mentions very specific good deeds because they are deeds for which there is no immediate reward. Think about it. Let's say your good deed, the thing that you just excel at, is that each and every Sunday you get everybody up out of bed, you get them nice and dressed up, and you get them here to church each and every week and even on time. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. Does God want you to be doing that? Well, sure he does. But that good deed comes with some recognition, doesn't it? People around you at church, they, they see that you're here. Pastor sees that you're here. Even people in your neighborhood see that you're going to church, right? Let's say, for example, that your good deed is that each and every year when you get that Christmas bonus, you write out a nice big check to some sort of local charity. Is that a good thing? Sure it is. But that nice big check probably gets your name in their monthly newsletter. Maybe even gets your name up on a plaque on the wall inside their building. Or let's say that your good deed, the thing that you excel at, is that you are just the nicest person in the world to your boss at work, to that incredibly wealthy neighbor who lives next door, to that most popular kid in your school. Is that a good thing? Sure it is. But in each of those cases, your kindness to that other person probably results in some sort of benefit to you. Here Jesus points out good deeds that have no immediate transparent reward. Helping people who are in need, offering your possessions to people who are hungry, thirsty, or in need of clothes, people who have nothing to give back to you, caring for showing compassion for outsiders and outcasts, people who have no influence, no power, no recognition whatsoever. Those kinds of good deeds come with no reward. Not a pat on the back, not a plaque on the wall, not even a post on social media so that everyone can see what you've done. There's only one reason why people would do those kinds of good deeds. Another thing that helps a judge or a jury 
get it right is when there is indisputable evidence regarding the defendant's innocence or guilt. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. That's the second way that he gets it right. Not only does he produce a confession, but Jesus presents indisputable evidence. The kind of behavior in a person's life that matches up perfectly with the confession that is inside of them. The kind of things only people who are not looking to produce their own reward would do. The kind of things that people who are trusting Jesus for their reward would do. The kind of good deeds that really can't be done in the interest of self, but can only be done in service to Jesus. In fact, that's how Jesus describes them. He says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Judge Jesus is going to get it right, both in producing a confession and presenting us with evidence. So friends, realize the favor that Judge Jesus is doing for us here. Not only is he making it clear the difference between these two groups, he is making it obvious how that difference can be recognized. He is making it possible for us right here right now to ask ourselves that all-important question, to which group do I belong? You might say Jesus is giving us all the answers to the most important test we will ever take so that when the day comes when we will take it, we will pass with flying colors, both in the confession that he produces and the evidence that he presents. Jesus is saying, don't trust yourself Rather, put all your trust in me. And thankfully, he's done more than enough to earn that trust. See, in these verses, Jesus says that he will come again on the last day in all of his glory. We need to remember that already once he came with no glory. On the last day, it'll be all majesty and all splendor, but... He already came once in weakness and humility. In these verses, he tells us that when he returns, he's going to be flanked on either side by the mighty host of angel armies. But of course, we need to remember that the first time Jesus came, he went toe-to-toe with sin, death, and Satan completely alone, completely abandoned by his followers, abandoned by his own father, no angel armies to help him out. Jesus says here that he's going to come on the last day to judge all mankind. And we need to remember that he came once already to be judged in the place of all mankind, to be charged with our crimes, to be convicted of our guilt, to be punished with our sentence. You know, in sort of a surprising way, God's justice system does work a little bit like our American justice system does. On the day of judgment, we're not going to stand before a jury of 12 peers, but the one before whom we will stand is, in fact, our peer. The one who came to earth to be like us in every way, in fact, to take our place in the defendant's chair, to take on our crimes, our guilt, our punishment, all so that we could go free. It's that Jesus who pleads with us. Don't put your trust in yourself. Put your trust 
in me. Do you think he's earned it? Actually, don't answer that question. Instead, trust the Father's answer to that question. You see, there's a very specific reason why Jesus has been given the authority to judge. It's not simply that Jesus can remain impartial. It's not simply that Jesus knows all things and so he would never make a wrong judgment. The Father could do those things just as easily as Jesus could. No, Jesus is given the authority to judge as a reward for his work as our Savior. Jesus was appointed this one man's supreme court as part of the Father's final and formal stamp of approval on any, everything that Jesus did to save us from our sins. Friends, that's why you and I need not fear the day of judgment. That's why you and I can look forward to the day of judgment. God the Father has already declared that Jesus got it right. And now he has entrusted Jesus with the responsibility of getting it right again. And call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure we can trust him too. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.